Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, and tonight i got a special guest with me here in the flesh, which is unusual for the podcast, but here in the flesh we got Thomas from Virginia Outdoors Unlimited. Super excited to talk to him. He's got some awesome summer plans. We went out, did some. we did a little bit of duck recon ourselves tonight, but before we jump into the episode, before we jump in and grab him in, in on the podcast, let's get a quick thanks from our partners and... Uh, We'll jump right into it. So first off, I give a big thanks to Onyx, guys. If you haven't checked out Onyx, is the perfect perfect solution for um, whether it be private land or public land, your hunting needs for mapping, finding permission. Um, you know, for me on private land, it's a huge deal. You know, we talk a lot about the Snake Swamp, and I was able to click on the Snake Swamp Snake Swamp right on the app. It told told me. The landowner's tax information took the address, drove to his house, and asked him for permission. We don't get a lot of yeses. I got a, I got a yes on that one, which was awesome. If you're not using Onyx and you're and the people around you are, then 100%, 100% you're at a disadvantage. So check them out. You can uh, find them on Apple. You can find them on Android. You can find them on PC, on your computer as well. Um, also, I'd like to give a big thanks out to Bandit, Avery, and Greenhead Gear. Guys, I've been saying it a lot. It's off-season. It's time to put your list together of things you want, things you need, um, things that broke during last last season. Um, I got a long list of things that I'm picking up and getting ready for um, for season because you, know, you don't want to overload yourself, everything you need to get for season right there at the beginning. I know that's probably what a lot of us do, but right now is the perfect time, not to mention people that got fathers. It's Father's Day coming up as well. So, um, which I guess everybody's got a father, right? So, <laughs> um, but check it out guys. Uh, everything that a duck hunter could want from decoys, from hunting equipment, uh, camo, um, dog gear, you name it. They got everything over there. Banded Avery and Greenhead gear on banded.com. Also guys, um, check out Patreon Patreon for the podcast as well uh, over there. Me and Ellie are putting out some extra content, whether it be uh, podcast, whether it be um, some extra video content, sneak peeks. I put out the sneak peek for the Snake Swamp. Um, super excited about the series that I'm putting together for off season. So um, definitely some cool stuff going on over there. Um, and that support for the podcast and everything Elliot and I do, um, that helps us get the, keeps the light lights on. And really, we really, really appreciate that a lot. So Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it with Thomas. How are you doing tonight? Doing great. Very uh, glad to be up here. I had a lot of fun going and exploring the Snake Swamp with you this evening. and yeah. Really appreciate you inviting me into your home and all the hospitality. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Uh, when you when you said you're coming this way, I'm like, man, that's going to it's gonna be perfect. And I think you're kind of thinking the same thing. It's like a, a good middle stop, and um, I'm glad to have you, glad to, you know, talk about duck hunting stuff with you and show you around my, my neck of the woods. And, um, I got to drive you to a few, few places. I'm like, that's where that video was. And that's where this video was. And that's where like, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about in the snake swamp, that's where all this stuff is happening. And, and so, uh, you know, that's cool to do cool to, you know, bring in, bring in a, a buddy and, <laughs> and go through all that. So I was super excited, uh, that you're, you're stopping on your way, um, which, you know, we'll get, we'll get into that a little later mm-hmm. because you got some big, some big plans coming this summer. And, um, you know, if you guys are thinking about it right now, if he's halfway to where he's going, you can kind of think about <laughs> the yeah, mystery. A little, <laughs> yeah, a little teaser there. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you think of the snake swamp, man? Dude, it is. So, there's a couple spots that me and my buddies hunt on public land, you know, that look very similar to the snake swamp. And we've always said, you know, gosh, we just wish we could get permission on a place Mm -hmm. like this so that we could do some management or, you know, just have it to ourselves, honestly. Yeah. And I mean, just the, the combination of the habitat, the location and the birds, I think just makes it really cool. I mean, you have an awesome variety of birds in there. You have a really cool mix of habitat with a bunch of different food sources and, I mean, unique-looking spots. And then also, I mean, the location, it's kind of uh, uh, 
an interesting location. I mean, I don't know how many people have honestly probably not many waterfowlers have ever hunted a spot like that. I mean, it's an old part of the river that has been disconnected and turned into a swamp through basically dredging that was done here. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, it's like a, a massive, this way I, I've decided to kind of explain it because a lot of people know what an oxbow is. So if you don't know what an oxbow is, I'll, I'll kind of describe it. So um, just from a normal erosion from a river, if you have two bends that come together, um, so I guess it'd be three bends. You have a, a bend that let's just imagine if it's going in a straight line, everybody imagining this in your mind and it bends to the left and then it horseshoes back around and then bends to the right and kind of continues on. Well, the erosion from the river flowing against that bank long enough and it'll, it'll road the, the, the bank away till it connects with the river over there. And then now that river just flows and usually it's some type of flood event that finally causes that breakaway and we're all, the water starts flowing that way, and then you have what's left is an oxbow. And that part is no longer part of the river. Nothing flows through it, and so you just have this stagnant section of river that used to be. And you can have big oxbows, you know. Yeah, I mean, the ones we hunted in Kansas were pretty giant that first year. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I actually hunted an oxbow, but, um, yeah, they're definitely they're ever Anywhere where there's a river, there's a chance for it to erode, and then you get sections of that. Well, this is like, the snake swamp is like a a glorified massive oxbow because they dredged right through it. They did what nature would do, but it would, I mean, nature would never do it the way they did it, obviously. But, mm -hmm. um, so it left this huge section of, um, swamp and I measured like the banks of it. And this is not even like we, but we were on there. Me and me and Thomas are actually on, on X and we were measuring, you can, there's an, a, a tool in there where you can take measurements and we measured the whole area around it. And it came out to be just shy of like five and a half acres mm -hmm. in the banks. And there's a lot of water that goes outside of it, a lot, a lot. So really it's probably seven acres, something like that. So, I mean, it's, I mean, if you see like a seven acre pond, I mean, that's a pretty big piece of water, but this is all winding through the woods, swampy section. And that's why I call it the snake swamp because it winds around like a snake. There's mm -hmm. no snakes in Indiana, yeah. <laughs> but there's not very many. There's, there's definitely some down South, but yep. I mean, that's honestly, I think that's probably one of the, the coolest features about it. Because, I mean, when you were hunting it last year, you were talking about how you were testing out different spots throughout the swamp. And you still, you know, were, you were finding spots with different birds in there. Which, like, if you had, you know, one big seven-acre pond, you hunt that. And pretty much all the birds are going to get educated to some degree. But with your swamp, because there's all these turns and, you know, little coves and stuff, you can hunt one area and then still have birds in, you know, a tucked away little mm -hmm. corner of the swamp for your next hunt so that's definitely a, a cool cool aspect to it i i think yeah yeah there'd definitely be times where we'd paddle out and um you know the birds you wouldn't even i wouldn't even know that there's birds in there because they'd land you just can't see them it's so so tight quarters but you know kind of like putting boots on the ground and kind of seeing it um i took you to like one of the only open sections where you can stand on the ground actually that's like the only open section right there mm -hmm. where we stood in that whole place um, that I can, I know how to get to, uh, there might be other places. There might be, I, I'm kind of racking my brain, but it's really, really tight vegetation, really tight trees. Um, and there's just not very many places you can stand in there and hunt. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, you definitely had conveyed that and it's always hard to like really, I don't, I want to, I don't want to say believe, but like wrap your head around it. Cause like I've never really dealt with like a, a completely bottomless swamp like that, but just in our little time today, I mean, definitely not something you want to go <laughs> trucking into because like you're, you're, you're liable to either get stuck or sink yep. is what it seemed like in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not only that, but like once you get on the banks, like where we stood on the bank, you could set up right there. Mm -hmm. Like if I brought chief in and wanted to do like an impromptu, little wood duck shoot before work, which, you know, I've, I've thought about it for that spot in particular where it's mm -hmm. open, you know, you'd be just doing some pass shooting. You know, I get it. Not ideal. Like everybody wants to decoy in, but like if you just had like an hour before work or something, yeah, that'd be perfect, man. Cause chief could go out there and get them all that kind of stuff. I wouldn't need the canoe, all that. But besides that, man, like all the other places we tried to set up, um, there's just so much like there's timber and brush and vegetation in the way mm -hmm. that you just can't get good shots on the birds. So, you know, yeah. and it definitely works both ways. Cause I mean, when I flew my drone over the swamp this evening and we probably saw about 10 wood ducks and the first day, as soon as they saw that drone, which what I've learned or what I've hypothesized over the years is that they think it's a bird of prey because they, 
they if you see geese geese put their head flat on the water when they see a drone but basically when the wood ducks saw the drone they went straight for that buck brush because mm-hmm. you know it's cover for them they think you know even if there if there is a bird of prey it's not going to be able to get through the buck brush to them so you know it 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 works both both ways is basically the only way yeah. to say it yeah you're right it's definitely good to have that kind of stuff but you know, that's kind of where I've decided that I have to have like the blinds and all that, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I've shared with you, I don't know if I've shared both the, the videos I got done so far in the series on the snake swamp with you or not, or if you just seen the second one or if you've seen I think it. I've seen both of them. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. So you've kind of seen like, like where we're up to so far on the content, you know, but the next part that I got to do for that, um, for hunting it, not only the series, but the next thing I got to do is build the blinds. And that's kind of where, you know, with that thick vegetation, which is good for the ducks, like you said, the buck brush and all that, they need somewhere to hide, somewhere to feel safe, somewhere to roost. But, um, I got to have blinds to get above it and get out in it because yep. we can't stand in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to, to have you there. So you can kind of see it. It's like you said, when anyone tells you something, like no matter who it is, you're like, well, I could figure out a way to do it, right? Like, yeah. I haven't hunted, but I'd figure out a way, you know. Um, and, you know, so you can kind of see. And there's definitely more than one way to tackle it. You can build the blinds. There is a few places you can stand. You could do layout kayaks, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, but even then, I mean, it's just, it, the thing is, from your videos and I don't know if this is all spots, but from your videos, it looked bigger. And then like when we got in there in person, I mean, it, it's tight. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's very tight and trying to hunt that tight of an environment and lay out kayaks. I mean, I can see that being tough, so I can see why you want to go yeah. with the blinds, but um, I definitely think the floating blind in there could be a, could be a real, real, uh, real killer because I mean, it seems like, you have a bunch of different, really just tucked away little coves. So, like, I mean, even just pushing, being able to push a blind all the way back up in there and get into that super skinny water, I can see that being really effective, you know, later in the season for mm-hmm. the wood ducks and the teal that you've been shooting in there historically. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about it. So, yeah, for yeah. sure. But, yeah, that water, and, I mean, I can see them. The, the thing that I thought was super interesting is that when we were walking in there, there's a bunch of dead trees. So you can tell that at some and you said the water's low so at some point the water gets out of out of the banks of the Mm -hmm. swamp and um i mean i could see that adding adding to the habitat of that swamp vastly if you know you have a lot of shallow flooded stuff up in the timber there Mm -hmm. filled with whitetails too i really hope that at some point i can get some of that whitetail permission too so we probably had what 15 20 blows at us yeah yeah we we couldn't see any of them because it's so thick in there but we had a deer within 50 yards for sure. I mean, yeah. Oh, there's some that were just right next to us. Mm-hmm. They were just bedding right next to us in there. Be super cool. So I, I pulled the, the trail cam. So we'll take a look at those later. Actually, I meant to do that before we got on so we could talk about it. But oh well, it won't be, <laughs> won't be in this podcast. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to touch on on there. But, um, you know, after kind of being up and, and seeing it, what are the chances we get uh, another, uh, another, cameo <laughs> I, I would have really really loved to hunt that spot with you if i can make it happen for this year i just wish y'all season went like later yeah like if i mean if if december i might it would be more feasible for me but if i can you yeah because you got school and all that so yeah so yeah i might not be able to make it back up here this year but i definitely would love to hunt that spot with you sometime i mean yeah just uh i think oh, yeah. and i think you know it'll only get better as you do more work and mm-hmm. i mean obviously you have a lot of natural food but i think you've got some good ideas for the coming season and even after that you know wild rice and stuff like that i think could be really effective in there so um yeah, oh, yeah. i look forward to seeing what it turns into and hopefully one day i can get to be a part of it yeah for sure one day you know like you said it probably probably won't happen this year cuz i got about to the first week of november and you'll be in the heat all year your school and your Virginia opener and all that. Yeah. Um, Cause then after that, right now on the spot, the unfortunate thing is um, somebody has deer permission. And it's like the landowner's cousin. Like you do, you take what you can get. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, if I can hunt this spot for, you know, two and a half weeks or whatever, and then have to wait a week and a half or whatever it is for deer season. Yeah. Um, and then go back. It almost gives it a little rest period. Right. Mm-hmm. So, the only fear you have is that it freezes up by the end of November, which can happen. So, um, who knows? 
there's still so much to learn about the snake swamp. That's for sure. Yeah, and I'd be interested even to see maybe throw an ice eater in there and see mm-hmm. how that does. I mean, I don't know if you've put any <laughs> thought into that, but that would be. I've never heard of anybody putting an ice eater in a swamp. So yeah, right there at the um, Mallard Bay, as I call it, <laughs> that would be the perfect spot for it. Right in front of uh, where we're planning to build the big, the big floating blind. Right there would be a perfect the, spot for it. The lily pad spot. Yeah. Oh, yep. Okay. Yep. yep. So as long as uh, yeah, ice rippers are a little expensive. So <laughs> I'd think about it. And the the only other problem is because you gotta you'd have to be able to bring in fuel because I think you gotta uh, yeah or, well that's or not further. true not not because I was just actually I was just I'll mention this now um, but I was just on Josh's podcast Outdoor Limit podcast is that what it's called right mm-hmm. yeah. Outdoor Limits podcast I was just on his podcast so if you guys haven't checked out Outdoor Limits podcast. You guys probably know him from the YouTube videos. He makes some awesome content content from out there in Kansas. Well, now he started a podcast as well this off season, and um, you know, hoping hoping uh, all for the best for him and his endeavors with the podcast. I was just over there on there. Um, some cool content. Go check it out, guys. But we talked about <clears throat> ice rippers because he he's got some experience with it, and he's saying their strategy on it is they know where the roost is at. And know where the the feed's at, and they try to jump in between. Because I was thinking, like an ice ripper, you just kind of leave it out there all the time, mm-hmm. and just keeps a hole open whenever everything else is frozen. You know, it kind of makes sense as far as like Indiana terms, where we don't have a lot of ducks. It seems like it would take them a lot of time to to find it. Yeah. But if you could do something like that, and you're trafficking them over an open spot in the water, and they don't have a lot of options, and they see a bunch of decoys, yeah, that that would make sense. So. Well, and also you're right there. I mean, along a river, so mm-hmm. that obviously, I mean, if if all your swamps and ponds froze up, that's going to be the natural flight corridor for them ducks looking for open water. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it could, it could, it could actually be something. It's just I feel like it's like a. It's not 100%. It'd be a lot of investment. to. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work, a lot of investment, because I'd have to get uh ice eater out there. And we know, like, uh, you saw kind of the path. We got to go um, portage the canoes on land into the creek, paddle the creek, get up there. Then you'd have to, like, carry it up a steep bank. And I don't know how much these weigh, but when I was talking to Josh, he was saying, like, he doesn't think you could do it in a canoe. So <laughs> if I can't do it in a canoe, you know. Yeah, I mean... I don't know how much the actual unit weighs. I mean, I, I can imagine the inverter and the and the gas being a hassle just in itself. But yep. yep. So it'd be hard to get one in there, but I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. Maybe I've, someday when they have uh, solar power, you can put a solar panel right on the top of your blind. That'd be that'd be cool. Yeah. Someone needs to come up with that solar powered ice eater. Elon, we're counting <laughs> on you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just. I mean, honestly, I'm, ice eaters seem to be almost becoming. Not to sidetrack, almost like contentious issue right up there with with flooded corn. Now I've been hearing over the past couple of years, you know, people, you know, talking <laughs> bad about ice eaters. But That's just silly. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's those boys down south wishing that uh, the birds would keep moving. But yeah, I don't like you know I, how like the percentage of birds that get stopped by ice eaters is like a percent of a percent of a percent because barely anybody has them, and then you're stopping like. Like how many birds are you actually pulling off of their flight path with an ice eater? And and I don't know anybody who you know puts out an ice eater just to hold birds. You know they're planning on shooting those birds within a day or two, which is going to move them along anyway. But I know yeah. of someone who's done it locally, where they would set up an ice eater and just leave it running on a farm pond, and uh-huh. it would hold geese like crazy. So huh. um, I can see that in late season. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you know, if yeah, you got field feed feed. feed Field feeding geese. <laughs> Got the tongue twister there. Yeah. 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 That would make sense. But, uh, yep. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think that pretty much covers what we want to talk about with the, the snake swamp. I, I feel like, I hope I'm not like uh, <laughs> talking about it too much. I am super excited about it. But, um, the other thing I, I'm super excited about is the, the duck bus. You got to take a look at that in person. And- yeah. It definitely is coming along. I mean, it was. It looks a lot different than it did, and I mean, you've only made one one video with it, with that being that Michigan hunt. So, but it looks a lot different now, and I think it'll probably look even more different, you know, at the beginning of season, hopefully. So, yeah, um, you've been doing. It looks like you. I mean, I know you've been doing a lot of work to it, and uh, I'm really excited to see the finished product now. Now that I've got to see it in person, <laughs> yeah. I'm no carpenter. I'm no craftsman, but uh, I'm learning a lot and and turning on it, but. Again, pretty cool to kind of just show show some of that stuff 
I wish I had more done to show show you on it. So uh, yeah, I mean it was cool just to discuss like the layout plans for it because I mean honestly that's like probably the biggest decision is how you're gonna how you're gonna design it because once you do that there's there's not really much going back on that. So yeah, once you finish it, like once you you could frame it in and decide to switch it around, but um you'd lose some money in lumber which you know it's like i might as well build the bus out of gold bars but it's like (laughs) you know i I saw like a post the other day it was like a meme or i don't even know if you call that a meme not really it was a post and it showed two pictures and one was um this pallet full of two by fours Mm -hmm. and it said like um wood a thousand dollars worth of wood in 2020 yep and then it showed like another bird and it was a board another board another stack of boards yeah another stack of boards another uh bunch of boards on on a pallet and it was like i mean it was like a fourth if not maybe like a fifth yeah i saw the same post it was i think it was a fourth i think lumber prices have either tripled or quadrupled close yeah to there. and so i was kind of googling it because it's really i mean it really puts a damper on because i'm gonna have to spend like a lot of money to frame this bus out mm-hmm. <laughs> it puts a big damper on that plan because I st- I still I'm still going to frame it. I just don't think I'm going to finish it this year because of the prices of lumber. I'm just going to get it where it's huntable and um cuz I, I was trying to google and do some research and like when are lumber prices going to go back down? <laughs> and well, uh, yeah. yeah. And they said pretty much they're like they're caught up, but now we're through like we're right in the building season. Now we're summer, it's the building season, so demand is up. So the prices aren't going to come down. And they said last year that building demands were up, which the housing market is crazy right now. If people who follow that, you know, um, if you're not following that, it is. It's, it's, the housing market is crazy. Like prices of houses are up like 50% plus. Yep. Everybody's trying to build. Everybody's trying to buy. And they said the demand for houses didn't even go down through the winter. So hmm. they said it's it's definitely not going to go down till at least next spring. I'm like, oh, geez. So I was hoping they're going to be like, oh, it's gonna it's gonna start dropping, coming back closer to normal, like next year. It's mm-hmm. like if we would have known, man, we could have just bought. Like, can you imagine like investing in two by fours? It sounds like so silly, but like yep. it literally it would have been like a five x um, <laughs> investment. Yeah, yep. just bought piles of two by fours and kept them and hoarded them. So, um, yeah, but that's the plan. I'm going to get any, it. Is there anything else you could use besides? wood for what you're looking to do I you mean, could do aluminum if you knew how to weld or if you wanted to like drill and bolt and everything mm-hmm. you could i mean you could do aluminum it'd be a lot more lightweight but it just feels like that's a lot harder you know yeah. a lot of sharp edges and all that and i don't really i'm just gonna do wood so i'll still I'll, I'll have to do the floor with wood i'll have to do like frame it as far as like the walls and plywood and and i'll get like the basics up but i'm not gonna I'll, I won't. I'll hold off on the finishing of it. I guess. Yeah. So get it functional. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a big undertaking, and I mean, I don't see any reason it shouldn't be a, a multi year project. I mean, if you got to mm-hmm. stretch out, you got to stretch it out. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that's an, that's the new plan on that. But you know, speaking of plans, you got some big plans coming up. Yeah, I'm headed to uh, a new opportunity, a new uh, a new experience. So. Man, you've been uh you've been kind of going off and doing some fun stuff. I mean, from last year, you know, you started off last year your first kind of big adventure in like the waterfowl industry, kind of outside of what you normally do. Which, like, obviously, your normal stuff is your content creator. You make YouTube videos on your channel. You know, you do the the regular social media stuff that that most YouTubers and kind of stuff do, right? Facebook, yep. Instagram and um youtube you know that's your big three right Mm -hmm. so um but last year i mean what what did you do last year you want to you want to touch on that kind of like give a a good timeline yeah yeah so i mean last year end of november through basically end of january i uh went down to texas and worked for stanfield hunting outfitters down there if you haven't listened to the big honker podcast they're the guys who run the big honker podcast and basically i was working as a dedicated cameraman down there um filming full-time they're gonna have a youtube series that'll be coming out here in late july and early late july through august from what i understand so um be on the lookout for that I'm, i'm really excited for that but yeah i was just filming for them and uh, really, you know, a, a completely new experience for me. I mean, I've self-filmed for three, four years now um, pretty steadily, but 
working as a cameraman where you know it is your sole job to basically capture a day's worth of content every day um was a new was a new challenge and and required a new new skill set so it was a lot of fun i learned a lot i kind of fell in love with texas waterfowl hunting i mean it's just nothing like anything i'd ever experienced back east um so yeah i got a another opportunity for this year and um yeah i'm looking forward to i'm heading up to uh, minnesota here before too long yeah not to not to derail you too much but yeah so that, i'm crazy pretty cool to go be able to do like adventures like that and go off and uh you know um like a hundred out of a hundred times, man. If I was your age again, like, and doing the same stuff, I'm envious of you that you started it at this age. And you, and so like these opportunities are coming up for you because you've done the YouTube and learned a skill and all that, that, I mean, you think about it. Like if you think about the waterfowl industry, like, and YouTubers, your age, there just isn't any, right. You're the youngest guy in the flyways collective, um, to have a channel your size. There's just nobody, you know, it's like <laughs> when you go and you apply for some of these positions, right. I mean, there's, you got a pretty good opportunity to be able to jump in on that and, and do them, um, you know, at, at the age you are too, because any of the older guys in the flyways, like we got, we got, uh, families to support and all that kind of stuff. So it's awesome opportunity, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's awesome for you. I'm, I'm super pumped for you that you get to do, do stuff like that. And, uh, you know, if anybody's listening and you want to <laughs> be able to, to do stuff like that, cause even working at HDR, we'd get people young guys coming up who'd message every once in a while and stuff like that. I mean, um, and we're just too small for it, but there's definitely opportunities like that here and there in the waterfowl industry. Not a lot of them, but to have like, you know, the skill set that you've built, you, I mean, you just got to go out and you got to figure it out before those opportunities arise so that you have a good chance of getting it. Because if somebody else would apply to it, cause it was an open thing that people could apply to, um, you know, the Stanfield one was kind of something that came up like, word of mouth right kind of got spread from you know uh, yeah but even with that i mean i think the what i've really learned more than anything is all it takes is one connection mm-hmm. like all it takes is one person you know just it, it can be a simple conversation it can be a you know establishing a relationship with that person you know i met ben and through ben i got to know jeff and then through jeff Basically, I learned about this current, the current opportunity that I applied for, and this last one. I mean, I, I literally just applied on Facebook. Like, yep. I, I saw a Facebook ad for it, sent in an application, followed up. Um, I mean, it, it was really that that simple. So it's not. I think, I'll, and I've got a couple of questions about it. It's. I think there's a daunting aspect to it because the hunting industry does seem so closed, and it really is about. Yeah, it is a lot about contacts and who you know, but. You know, it, it all it takes is that one conversation and just being willing to reach out or or talk with the talk with someone about it and even ask some questions. It doesn't even have to be applying for something. Just hey, how do I do this or this or this? Yeah, yeah. And you know, through that, you've kind of you've built your skills and like you have a catalog of you know hundreds of videos on YouTube and you know so it definitely gives you a, a pretty good advantage. Not to mention all the time you spent filming for Stanfield last year as well. So now when you apply for something like that, it's just, it's like, who's going to have a better <laughs> resume than that. Right. It, as someone coming in to work as an intern for, you know? Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I guess, but honestly, when I look at these opportunities, I, I'm looking at them to, to learn a new skill. So I, I never want to come in as like, Oh, you know, I've done this and this and this is, no, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn and, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old, so I still have, yeah. I still have, I've learned a fraction of, of what I hope to learn over, you know, the course of the next, however many years. So, yeah. um, you know, it's just, I always try to keep an open mind with these, with these type of things and, um, just be as, as open to new experiences and new learning opportunities as possible. Oh yeah. Def- definitely agree with you on that. Definitely a good mindset. You know, uh, I guess the point I was trying to make on that is if if someone's trying to look and try to like get break into the waterfowl industry, because we'd have people messages Mm -hmm. and if they don't have any kind of like they haven't done anything, they haven't run a social media page, they don't know how to post, they haven't studied algorithms and and how everything works on that. And like, that's going to be part of what you're doing, right? I mean, you're going to be working on social media and you're going to learn. I mean, this guy is, uh, um, what's his last name? It's Corey... uh, Corey Loeffler. Yeah, Loeffler. So I guess I didn't even say. Um, yeah. It's DRC Call Company. Um, yeah, very well-known guy in the industry, and you're definitely going to be able to learn a lot from somebody like that. I mean, he, he works with all types of companies, so that's super, super cool. 
Yeah, and I mean, the really what caught my eye about about this opportunity, and I, I saw it on I saw it on the Big Honker Facebook page, is where he posted it, and and what caught my eye about it was that there was uh, so many different opportunities that like I hadn't ever got to experience before. This was kind of an all encompassing um, summer internship, so learning about small business, learning how to run a duck call press. Or I don't know if that's the right. Or, you know, learning how to, through, yeah, learning how to make C- duck CNC. calls, duck, duck yeah. and goose calls. Um, you know, kind of building on the photography and videography work that you know I've had some experience with. Um, just kind of the, the whole um, kind of bundle of skills, I guess, that was kind of offered yeah. with, with this. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I, I remember you shared that with me, kind of like what it all entailed, and definitely some cool things on there that you're gonna get to learn for sure and, and dive into head first. And mm-hmm. so this is just, a, I mean, it's a, it's a summer gig, right? So you're doing it from pretty much you're starting like this week, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. So, I mean, it's what June 3rd today, uh, June, no, June close 2nd. enough. June something 2nd. like yeah, that. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically working June, July, and then, um, planning on the first half of August right now. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be really cool. And I, I honestly, I, I'm, I wouldn't be able to do this without having, you know, I, I need to say I'm very lucky to have a family who's willing to let me go out and kind of just do my own thing for two, three months at, at a time, um, especially, you know, during this time of year. So, oh yeah, um, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't make it happen without them. So um, very awesome. lucky in that regard. Awesome. Anything else you want to hit on, on that, uh, your summer, summer job or, um, I mean, if anybody wants to go fishing or do anything this summer in Minnesota, I'll be basically uh, DRC is located up in the northwest corner of Minnesota. So um, I'm sure I'll be doing stuff with them. But also, you know, I'm I'm down for it to meet some new people and try out some new things. I want to catch, uh, hopefully, catch some walleye. That's right up at the top of my list. And I'm hoping the can- the Canadian border opens as well. Maybe go and hop the border and go explore up there some. So. That's kind of the f- things I'm looking forward to besides, you know, just the, the work aspect of it as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been up there in Minnesota for game fair one time. Actually, I met some of the guys from DRC. Honestly, I can't remember if Corey was there or not at the time. I really didn't follow him on social media till, mm-hmm. till later on. So I'm not, I'm not sure if he was there or not, but um, one thing I will say that it's that kind of from my experience going up there to game fair, working um, with working for HDR doing that is it seems like, it seems like Minnesota has this like subculture all their own mm-hmm. and in waterfowl. It's like steeped in waterfowl history and they have so much opportunity. You look at the numbers, like the, the number one state in the flyway in the Mississippi flyway for number of hunters at like 60,000 or something. Right. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a lot even compared to like across the country, a lot of waterfowl hunters. And I think that, you know, that speaks to one, like the waterfowl heritage that they do have. And I've met people in, in other States. I've met people in Kansas that came from Minnesota or whatever, you know? Um, but not, they just, they have this like subculture where there's a, like they have, there's a lot of people there that have like followings. I mean, there's Joey from Midwest flyways. There's uh Grinder Hines up there. There's molt, molt calls, DRC calls. Um, I think Sam Holt is from up there too. He's the guy that does the um, the public land tees, the public land. He did the the shirt with the oh, conservation uh, yeah, crossing. Yeah, yeah conservation yeah. crossing. Sam Soholt. Right? Soholt. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I, I yep. said his wrong his name wrong. But so there's there's just a bunch of guys from industry up in Minnesota. It's just kind of um, for me. It's just if I didn't realize it. Also, uh, uh, Lee Cho. Uh, yep. famous photographer. He's up from Minnesota too. There's just like so many Minnesotans that are, is that what they're called there? Minnesotans? I think so. Uh, hopefully that's not derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, uh, you know, people from Minnesota that are, uh, you know, really in, in, uh, ingrained into the current waterfowl industry. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool that you're going to go up there and, you know, be, be at least, at least a little bit of part of it or see, you know, get to kind of see that and, and experience too. I, I, it's a really cool place going up there for uh, for game fair and seeing that a little bit. But yep, yeah. I hope if anything, I can come out a better caller than when <laughs> I go up there because 
my friend from back home when I got back from Texas, he was he let me know that he was disappointed that I had not become a great goose caller in, in my <laughs> two months down there. So that's hilarious. I need to, uh, I, and I'll admit I'm not a good goose caller. So hopefully I can uh, learn a little bit more about how to call by maybe making a few calls, and yeah. maybe sh- that'll offer me some more insight. You should have took Matt with you if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> Just a joke, Matt. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. So I think we, yeah, I think we covered that pretty good. But uh, you know, one thing I kind of want to talk about a little bit here too is you kind of mentioned it, and we could probably do a whole podcast on this. But um, getting to be out there in Texas, and I know your time was tied up a lot with with work and filming, and just I mean, literally, you lived a pretty similar life to the guides out there as far as your time span. But you did get a, a little bit of free time. Here and there. I mean, you didn't have to scout, right? So, yeah, no, I mean, I, I went on a couple scouting trips, but no, typically it was just guides going on the scouting trips. So I know you got to do, I, I saw a few of your videos on your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how many videos did you get from Texas? Was uh, it like, I believe five in total, and I still have one more to edit. Okay. Um, but those, those are some really cool videos, and you had some really good hunts. And like, I, I can't lie, when I watched them, I, I was having last season. I hunted as hard as I've hunted ever, and I shot like I shot like a. I mean, I know it's not all about the numbers, but like just to put it in perspective, I track all my numbers on freelance hunt stats every year. Last year or the year before last year, I shot like 130 birds, mm-hmm. and in like the same amount of hunts this year with like more traveling and you know more access than I've ever had. I, I shot like 75 birds, or something. you know, it was like mm-hmm. it was rough. So, anyways. What I'm trying to get at is as I'm watching you just go out there and like you just like do these one off like it felt like you're just dropping into places you've never been. You're you're not really scouting. You just roll up in your kayak and you're shooting limits and pintails. And I was just I was super envious. So is that I mean, am I uh, is that how it was or was I just (laughs) I mean, that is it's not far off. I will say, I mean. I, the kind of inkling I got for spots or the direction I got was the local knowledge, you know, either Jeff or, um, Tony, actually Jeff's brother, Tony gave me really the best spots I had. He, he does, he used to do a lot of the scouting and uh, still does, you know, scouting or a lot, a lot of the guiding, or he used to do a lot of the guiding for Jeff. So he kind of had an idea of where some good spots were and he pointed me in the right direction. And yeah, I mean, Honestly, I did. I didn't do any prior scouting to my hunts. You know, I had you know, kind of you know, I was working six days off, one day a week. So I was like, you know, I'm, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, and I did have you know a couple hunts that didn't make the grade for videos right off the bat, where you know I was kind of still learning the ropes, and, and it's like that with any area. I'd say you know you got to kind of figure out the lay of the land, but down there, there definitely was just more uh, an abundance of and it. There, there's a lot of birds down there. I mean, that that makes it easy. But really, what I think made the big difference down there was the lack of pressure. I mean, it's just such a low population density, especially in the area that I was in, that you just don't have to worry about other people. On a weekday, if you're hunting a weekday, I mean, there's just... I mean, I would drive an hour to the spot and not see another car on the road. So, I mean... <laughs> that's that, crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, just so few people. And that's what I love most about it. I love that you could hunt a spot that wasn't really hard to access wasn't you know a crazy paddle or portage or something like that and you would still you know feel like you were away from the crowds and you know wouldn't hear anybody see anybody so um i really did enjoy that about down there and then i mean there's just a a variety of birds down there that you can't beat i mean you have thousands and thousands of speckle bellies in that area thousands and thousands of cranes and then i mean the ducks push through but when the ducks come through they come through in good numbers yeah so you shot i'm trying to think back to your videos because you didn't shoot any speckle bellies right nope i i no cranes either right nope i probably (laughs) i watched hundred i I, you know i filmed hundreds of cranes and geese being shot but i never shot one (laughs) myself of either um which was actually kind of purposeful but uh, i can touch more on that later but on the hunts I did go on, mainly pintails, mallers, and shovelers is what I shot. Some green wings and gadwalls in there as well. Um, but the first, honestly, the first hunt I went on down there was my most memorable. I shot three mallards and a pintail. It was like I basically 
tried to launch it. So it's hard to describe, but there was this big lake. And had I known where to go, I literally <laughs> could have parked my car 150 yards away from the spot I hunted, walked down the bank and set up right there. But I didn't know the lake at all. You know, Tony had basically just told me to go there. So I parked all the way at the other end of the lake, had to drag my kayak through about 200 <laughs> yards of bull rushes, which... Like by the time I did that, I was just dripping like I had just come out of a shower. So I was running late. I had planned on setting up before light, but because of that, I had to paddle all the way across the lake. And by the time I had got to the spot I wanted to hunt, it was already light. So I flushed like 200 mallards out of the spot (laughs) and then basically just set up there and they came back over the course of the morning. So it kind of worked out well, but um, it was a lot more more work than it probably should have been. But um, it, it was a very memorable hunt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds awesome. So, but yeah, it was, uh, gosh, I mean, it just like I just couldn't, uh, it, it was just something that would never happen like back home in Virginia. You know, if I flush birds out after shooting light in a spot like that, I mean, my heart's going to sink because I just have, you know, back home, I'd have no hope that they're going to come back. But, you know, there's so many birds down there that it's like, yeah. See, that's, that's a thought though. Like, I, I almost wonder. If those aren't the same birds coming back, you might have some coming back. And I, I hear that a lot. And same thing here. If if we flush them out, there's a good chance that that's, that's it. Like those birds, I mean, they're, they're probably roosting in there and now they go do their feed and all that. Maybe they'll come back in the evening, maybe not just from the pressure. And, and they, you know, they get educated and, and through the pressure and all that, if they get busted out of a spot, they might feel uncomfortable coming back. But like you said, with less people, out there in the central flyway, you do have a chance that they come back. But I almost feel like the same places they roost, birds come back to loaf or to feed, depending on the habitat. And if you're in a good spot where there's a lot of birds, it's probably that way the day before, too. And, and those could be birds that roosted or have been roosting somewhere else and, and end up coming back into that spot. So I don't know. That's my kind of take on it, um, just kind of, kind of from my experience. And I feel like in more populated areas with less habitat, like you and me, the two guys from the flyway that live the furthest east, right? So that's kind of what we run into a lot. You're not going to necessarily have another roost close enough that birds are going to loaf in the same spot. So I feel like that's kind of my theory on it. You know, I don't know what your take is on that as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree about that. And I'm not sure if they were the same birds. And I will say that down there, I had a lot more hope that birds would come back because birds down the ducks down there feel feed. Like I'm going to stumble <laughs> feed, 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 field feeding. Yeah. Do a lot of field feeding along with the geese. So, you know, I think that's because kind of down there, the difference is, and this is kind of the best way I can put it back East ducks are the limiting factor. We have plenty of water. We just don't have a lot of ducks down there. It seems like water is the limiting factor. They got plenty of birds. Hmm. It's just, they almost don't have enough water for, for them. So <laughs> it's like the birds, you know, they're going to eat all the food on the water pretty quick. And then they have to go out to those fields to get food or especially the ducks. Well, yeah, the, the ducks start going out to the fields and then you can pretty reliably count on them coming back to water between, you know, nine and 12 o'clock, you know, they're going to hit those fields in the morning and then they're coming back to water to get a drink after that. So, um, that does make kind of figuring out the birds patterns a little easier when you know that they're going to go to a field almost every day. Yeah. So kind of hunting all these places and, and you're, you're, you're getting to do a little bit more traveling. We do traveling with the flyways too. Um, going out to Kansas now and, and, uh, you know, we got our collab spot picked out for this year and, you know, we've, we've picked, we've, we've talked about a couple of different places. It sounds like we're going to switch to a different spot now. I don't know if we want to put the, let the cat out of the bag on that yet, but you know, you know, here in a few years after doing all this traveling, you know, you're going to have <laughs> a pretty good feel across the country of, of different waterfowl places. I'm pretty well rooted in my place. I think I'm not, I, I don't think I'm going to be moving anytime soon, but you know, you're going to be graduated from college. You got some, you know, big life decisions ahead of you. And, you know, if you could, if you could live anywhere right now, <laughs> you got a, you got a favorite spot you've been to. So, I mean, and I guess I probably should have said this earlier, but this is my first time in the upper Midwest. And a big part of the reason that I'm really excited to come up here is because, I mean, I've re- I really have always wanted to explore kind of the, all the corners of the U.S., um, because like you said, I mean, after college, I got to figure out a place where I want to live, where I want to settle down. Um, right now I've, my grandparents used to live out in Seattle. So I've spent quite a bit of time up in the Northwest 
And I really love the fishing up there. I love the weather up there. And by all accounts, I mean, the waterfowling is pretty great up there from um, what I've heard from Titus's videos and everything. So right now, kind of the Northwest is, is calling my name, I feel like. Um, but I've, I haven't been down to the Southwest. I haven't um, kind of been all the way up in the Northeast. And this will be my first time in the Midwest. So really, over the next couple of years, um, my goal is to try and explore as many states of the U.S. as possible and then water, waterfowl hunting as, in as many of them as possible. And uh, honestly, I, I'd, over the next couple of years, I'd love to be able to waterfowl hunt in the lower, all lower 48 states. I think that would be, <laughs> That'd kind, be of, cool. kind of a cool goal. So that, that's honestly kind of my goal. That's my goal right now. Um, and then after that, I think I should have a pretty reasonable idea of kind of where I'd want to, you know, spend maybe 10, 15 years, um, you know, to settle down and everything. Awesome. Yeah. Hopefully by the time you, uh, you decide they're not outlawing guns or anything out there in the, <laughs> yeah. the, the West, you know, the West coast, you know, those liberals. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I definitely, uh, California want to get in there before they do any more damage. Yeah. 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 So get in there before you can't but yep oh yeah so i'm trying to think um oh there i did have one other thought so you, you were talking about the number of ducks down there in texas and we hear a lot of stuff from the southern boys complaining about duck numbers which you know i do my fair com- my fair share i do more than my fair share about duck <laughs> complaining about duck numbers so i'm not i'm not getting on you i just i'm getting thomas's opinion here is there something to it I mean, also, I mean, you're also in the central flyway. I think more of the southern complaints are further to the east. Yeah, and I mean, I, I just have no perspective on it because I mean, this was my first year out there, and I mean, by all accounts, everybody who's who you know, all the guides at Stanfield, they said this was, excuse me, not a good year in terms of both duck and goose numbers. I mean, the birds just didn't come down in the numbers they typically do, but. The thing, it's just it's just a flyway deal, you know, and I don't want to put a number on it because I hear people make, you know, oh, the Central Flyway has 100 times as many birds as the Atlantic Flyway. I think that's probably a little bit blown out of proportion, but the Central Flyway has at least 10 times the birds the Atlantic Flyway does. After being out in both Kansas and Texas, I mean, <laughs> there's no way it's any less than 10 times because, I mean, at, at one point, the lake that I like to hunt the most down there it's about a 700 acre lake and it had 5,000 mallards that were basically living on it. And it's like, yeah, I crazy. mean, the whole area that I hunt in Virginia at times probably doesn't winter 5,000 mallards. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's just the volume of birds just migrating through and it, and you would notice like, I mean, it's not always great. I mean, the ducks could be, it's the same as Virginia here one day gone the next, but, um, when they did push through, they come through in just kind of incredible numbers. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think obviously if we don't have weather, there's always going to be less birds and birds are always going to kind of follow that ice line, especially later in the year after that winter solstice. But uh, I don't think there's any any real merit to, you know, anything north holding up the birds. I mean, besides weather, what else could it be? And the guys in Texas, actually, they're benefiting from it because the speckle bellies used to go down to Mexico. And now the speckle bellies don't do that anymore. <laughs> now their final stop is Texas. So now they just stop in Texas, and it, it can make for tough hunting when speckle bellies, when you have the same birds there for three months. I mean, towards the end of the season, it definitely got tough. Um, and they don't get the little geese like they do, uh, or like they used to. Um, but, yeah, definitely, I, I mean, there's just there's plenty of birds down there. I can't, can't imagine um, that... You know, I, I can't imagine there being more birds down there, but there there definitely has been from all accounts before. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely good perspective to hear on that, not being there myself. One thing that I have been hearing from a lot of people in the industry, and again, you have to take it from a grain of salt, because a lot of this is just like hearsay and, and what people see from year to year, and we all we all know that every year is different from the amount of water we have across the country, um, you know, that affects the migration, the amount of weather we have during season, the the temperature and all that. But one thing I'm kind of hearing from a lot of people is that it seems like the flyways are shifting towards the West more and, and from here. And, and I wonder if, if on the West coast they're having, I mean, cause they have a, a lot of population out there on the West coast. You'd think that if something like that's happened on the East coast and the Mississippi flyway, that it would be happening on the West coast too, where they're kind of shifting central as well. 
And uh, that, that'd be a real cool study to see if, if uh, you know, I don't know how, I know that the the West Coast, the Pacific Flyway, I mean, their limit on mallards is, is more than anywhere else, right? Because they can shoot seven mallards all the way out to Utah. Uh, is that That's the end of the Pacific Flyway, I believe. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's definitely cool. And uh, I'd love to see, I mean, I'm still kind of, you know, I want to, Right now, I, I want to do something in the waterfowl industry after college, but also I've thought about um, kind of going back back to school and doing some more waterfowl research because I've dabbled in that with my undergraduate, and that'd be an, a really cool project for someone to undertake. I don't know how exactly you'd study that. Personally, I don't put a lot of stock in that theory. I think, if anything, I think you're seeing northward shifts in the distributions of waterfowl and probably all four flyways. Um, so I think that's kind of... I think that's being misconstrued as a shift westward, um, but it, it, it certainly could be plausible. I can't rule it out by yeah. any means. Yeah, definitely hard to tell, but uh, definitely that that probably could we could, another whole podcast. We could do another whole podcast on that. So, but yeah, if someone wants to just if you just want to look into the history of it, I think the I think the textbook example would be to look at the the Greater Canadian Goose. Um, if you look at them in the central, in the, in the Mississippi and the Atlantic flyways, you can look at the history from basically like the 1930s onwards as those populations have shifted northward. I mean, Canada geese used to go all the way down to Louisiana, mm. and now in the Mississippi flyway, I mean, they don't hardly make it past Indiana. I mean, y'all winter geese here all year yeah. long. So yeah. um, it's just, I think I think that's where the, the real perception changes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely something interesting to take a look at, and definitely something we could dive in and probably probably do a whole nother hour on. But did I really just call it the Canadian goose, <laughs> the Greater Canada goose, Greater Canada before goose? Before I get before you get roasted, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's go ahead and wrap this one up. You got any last words or anything else you want to kind of add on to the end here, Thomas? Um, I don't think so. Thank you very much for having me on, Jordan. It was, and thank you for showing me the snake swamp. I, <laughs> that really, honestly, I think that made my whole trip. I to be able to put eyes on that and get to spend some time in there with you. That was oh, yeah. that was a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how the project turns out. Heck yeah, man! Glad to have you out here anytime, whether it's in season or not. You know, maybe I'll be seeing you um on august on your uh your way back home and <laughs> you'll be in time to see the millet or whatever we're working on but yep. uh go ahead and uh go ahead and give your plugs social media where people can find you yep yep so it's uh just youtube virginia outdoors unlimited and then uh face or facebook is virginia outdoors unlimited as well and instagram is just va outdoors unlimited and i guess i need to <laughs> start giving some more thought to a name change now that I'm heading out of state yet again. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you did a you did a vote in the fly or the the fellowship of the duck gun. So I'm, might happen someday. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. But all right, folks. That's all I got for today. I'm Jordan Deccan Chronicles, Thomas from Virginia Outdoors Unlimited, and we'll see you guys on the next one. See you.